I'm really excited to be with you in this place. This is the first time I have been with you in your new facility, been with you at the school and some of your smaller groups at other conference centers. And uh, um, I feel a little inadequate coming and talking with you about a great and glorious and gracious and good God when all you have to do is look around to see evidence of that. Uh, he has just amazingly blessed you with some gifts that I'm not sure you would even have dared to ask him for uh, four years ago or three years ago. And yet uh, here he is demonstrating his character and his nature to you in uh, such a way. And I'm, I'm delighted to be back with you in your fellowship. We do have a mighty God, and I'm not here to convince you of that. Only God himself can convince us of that. But I love to bear witness to this great and glorious and gracious and good God who has so freely given himself to you and me. And uh, I know you have uh, been uh, uh, taught and shared with from your staff, from Brian and Sidney and others in the past about uh, this great and glorious, good and gracious God, and it's kind of been the theme of our weekend. So I think I would probably say to you I need to take about one year's worth of sermons and put them in the next few minutes, as Sidney said. So one approach, I guess, is to try to furiously take notes and keep up, and some of you will be okay with that. The rest of you ought to just go ahead and close your notebooks, put your pens back in your pockets, and uh, say, all right, God, what's the one thing you have to say to me? And receive it in your heart, and uh, say thank you, and trust Him with that. Uh, but I've uh, discovered in, in uh, knowing uh, by the revelation and grace of God who He is and where He is in my heart, then once you begin to get a grasp on who it is that we're dealing with, this may sound strange to you based on a lot of things that you've heard, I don't really believe it's all that easy to sin when you've got a mighty God. When you and I know who it is that we're dealing with, that no matter what's going on in our world, we have a great and glorious and good and gracious God on board with us everywhere that we go. I think it's a little harder than we realize uh, to move counter than who He is. I mean, you literally have to forget to remember who God is and where He is to make a choice contrary to who He says we are. You and I have got to learn to ignore or defy this ever-present now, glorious, gracious, good, and great God uh, who sits on the throne of heaven and who sits on the throne of our human spirits to make such a choice. Somewhere along the line, whether you're consciously aware of it in the moment or not, there has to be a radical loss of perspective. A massive systemic failure at the core of who we are to disregard who it is who has done so much for us. Now, it's not just my opinion, although I believe that, but if you go with me to James chapter 1, let's use something that uh, James said as kind of a springboard into this awareness today. We're going to begin reading in verse 12 uh, and listen to these words. James says, Blessed is the man who perseveres when he's under trial. For once he has passed the test, once he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now in verse 13 he says, let none of us say that when we're being tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Why wouldn't we say that? Because God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself doesn't tempt anyone. Now, you're going to note something here and in other places in the Scriptures. We're never, ever taught to resist temptation. And maybe you've not thought of that before. Or maybe you've heard otherwise from hanging out at church. The Scripture never tells us to resist temptation. 
Now, we are to resist the tempter. And James, over in chapter 4, verse 7, tells us about that. He says, if you will draw near to God, if you will focus on God, if you will consider this great, glorious, good, and gracious God, then you can resist the tempter, but we're never told to resist or fight against the temptation. In fact, if we back up a few verses in chapter 1 of James, verse 2, listen to James' instruction. Rather do this, consider it all joy, my brothers. When you encounter various, and it's the exact same word, temptations. When you find yourself in these trials and these temptations, we're to consider it joy. They're meant for you. They're beneficial. They're productive. Look what he goes on to say in verse 3. The testing of these temptations in your faith is going to produce some endurance. Then this endurance, it's going to have its perfect result or end. That you may be mature, perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. So even the temptations that come against us in life are a benefit. But let's go on and read. Verse 14, when each one is tempted, when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust, then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. What's James teaching us? Most every day, we're going to experience a temptation. The tempter's going to come, and we're going to try to be lured by a liar into some kind of expression or some kind of choice that's contrary to the nature of God. And he's going to, whether you recognize it or not, try and deceive you about the nature or character of God. He may say something like this to you, you know, God is really great. Oh man, He is a great God. He created things just by His say-so, but He's not really all that good. Because if he were all that good, you wouldn't be in the mess that you're in right now. He might say something like, oh, he's a glorious God, all right. And you ought to really bow before him because if you don't do what he wants you to do, man, he is going to hammer you into submission because, you know, he's not really all that gracious. And he's going to try to tempt you and me to believe a lie about God. So that what happens? Once we believe that lie, he wants us to be unfaithful to the truth teller. Unfaithful to our true lover, as it were. So we would go out and have an affair with this liar. We would leave as the bride of Christ, our bridegroom, and go join our wills to this liar. And when we have an affair and join our wills to the tempter, to the liar, a child is conceived. And when that child is born, it has a name, and the name of that child is sin. And that child, that sin, can only bring death or a loss of life into our experience. Listen, if God is so great and good and gracious and glorious, and if James is right in verse 13 that he cannot be tempted, I better learn how to yield to the one who can resist him. That's why you and I don't ever want to see the temptations in life against just you and me. That's exactly what the devil wants you to believe. This temptation is coming against you. And you better come up with some strong mental intellectual fortress to resist it. You better dig deep and make more commitments and try harder to use your willpower to fight off this thing. He wants you to see the temptation against just you. He does not want you to see the temptation against a great and glorious and gracious God who lives in you. Because that's His defeat. 
You don't scare him or bother him if you think of yourself separated from Christ in any way, shape, or form. But when we see the temptation is not against just me, it is against Christ in me, this great and glorious and gracious and good God, He is able to resist the temptation. We're living from a different place. So what does that mean? In order to make a sinful choice, to act contrary to God and to His truth, what do I have to do? First of all, I've got to forget or ignore and defy that I'm dealing with a gracious God. Because you and I are under grace when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And under grace, salvation is always of God. Go back and read those well-known passages in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you and I have been saved through faith. That's not of ourselves. We didn't generate this. We didn't produce this. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of our works. So that none of us should brag and boast that I did all these wonderful things in life and I presented the package of all of my good works to God and He was so impressed by it, He had to receive me into His family and into His kingdom. Paul's making it clear that was not the origins of any of us in this room. Every one of us who's had an encounter with God and would call ourselves Christian, we received our salvation by grace. Grace is really simple. Grace is the activity of God in our behalf. Grace is God doing for you and me what we cannot do for ourselves. That allows us to think of faith maybe in a radically different manner. Faith is very simply the receptivity of God's activity. God, I believe you. Every one of us in this room who is a Christian started with not I. I cannot get to God. I cannot erase a sin record. I can't create a life pleasing to God. I can't work up enough merits. I can't improve. I can't repair this dead, sinful, separated self. Not I. But Christ. But the activity of God in my behalf. And if He doesn't come for me, and if He doesn't do for me what I can't do for myself, it's hopeless. Salvation always begins with not I. It always continues with but Christ. That's why Paul wrote the Colossian church in chapter 2 verse 6 and said, Just as you received Jesus Christ, not I, now walk or live in Him. Not I, but Christ is the salvation theology of every born-again Christian. And not I, but Christ is the living the Christian life theology of every born-again Christian. I can't love like that. I can't forgive those people. Forgiveness is too good for them. I don't have that kind of patience. I can't generate through my willpower the life that's pleasing to God on any given day of the week. But I know who can. And I know where He is. It is no longer I trying hard to love difficult people. It is I'm trusting Christ to love them through me. It is no longer me trying to manipulate my feelings so that I can feel like forgiving somebody. It is Christ and His forgiveness being released to this person who the same way He released His forgiveness to me. Listen, if any of us in this room is still trying to be a Christian, I don't know that we've even heard the truth of the gospel yet. If any of us in this room is trying hard to live the good Christian life, we've been deceived into thinking that we're the subject, we're the actor. Under grace, God is always the actor. He comes, He creates, He convinces, He justifies, He sanctifies, He glorifies. We're talking about a gracious God. 
a full and perfect Savior who comes freely offering a full and perfect salvation to all believers. That means right now, in my condition, no matter how I acted this week, no matter what I might think and feel like, no matter what the people outside of me may think, there are no unpaid debts between me and my God. There are no outstanding claims between me and my God. All of my sins are forgiven, according to Colossians 2.13. He's forgiven us all our transgressions, past, present, future. I don't ever have to beg God for forgiveness again. I don't have to ask God for forgiveness again. If He convinces me of a sin choice in my life, I say, yes, sir, you're absolutely right. Thank you that I have already been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're not going to be sin-conscious people. You'll never grow up to be like Jesus by being conscious of sin. You and I will only grow up to be like Jesus by being conscious of Jesus. A gracious Savior who's bridged every gap between us and God. He said to His disciples in John 14, 3, and His Spirit seeks the same truth to us because He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and when I come back for you, I am going to receive you unto Myself. An indivisible oneness, a union of lovers. There is nothing between God and me because He is a gracious God. There's no sin record, no outstanding claim, no judgment of the law, not even space between me and my God. We are dealing with a gracious Savior. This is who He is, living inside of us, all by His doing. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Whoa, time out. Behold, stop, take a look at this. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. You know, create is God's word. There are some words that belong to God and nobody else. Don't ever believe anybody that tells you this is perfect or this is free. Those are God's words. Only God's perfect. Only God's free. But create is God's word as well. None of us created a life presentable to God. None of us creates a life that's able to live the Christian life. Only Christ can live his life. But we're new creations. The old is passed away. How? By the activity of God in Christ. Brand new things have come. How? By the activity of God in Christ. We call that grace. And it is amazing. By the say-so of God, we are now someone who didn't exist before. There is no more just me. Just me died on a cross with Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. Sinful me died on a cross with Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. Separated, hell-bound, hopeless me was crucified with Christ, Paul says in Romans 6. That life was buried. When you bury something, you're finished with it. A brand new life was born from above by God's say-so indwelt by this gracious God. Meaning what? No matter what I think or feel, I am God's always being love child. That is a holy constant. It doesn't rise when I behave well. It doesn't fall when I behave like my wife's side of the family. It's a holy constant. It's a 10 every single day. I do nothing to earn this love. I can't do anything to ever cause God to stop loving me. This is a gracious God. This is a mighty, powerful God. I've received the free gift of a brand new creation. 
No fear of condemnation or rejection because now to condemn me, he'd have to condemn Christ in me, and that's not going to happen. To reject me, he'd have to reject Christ in me. That's not going to happen. The devil wants you to believe that even though you are a Christian, you can do certain things that will put you out of fellowship with God. Don't you believe that for a minute? That is not what our Bible teaches. You didn't get into fellowship with God by doing anything good. You don't get out of fellowship with God by doing something bad. If that is true, then we are in an arrangement with God based on our own human performance, and every one of us in this room is in a mel of a hess if that's the case. This is not about our performance. This is about the performance of another, Jesus Christ. He said, once He joined Himself to our human spirits, I will not never leave you or forsake you. Horrible English, but it's great Greek. It simply means emphatically so. This is what it means to be a new creation in Christ by the activity of God in us. Now what? There's no need to prove myself any longer. I don't have to prove myself to God by doing a bunch of religious activities and checking off my list every day. I don't have to prove myself to you. I don't have to prove myself to myself. My search for significance is over because Almighty God Himself has taken up residence in my human spirit. I don't have to concentrate on self-worth every single day and try to create a life worth living, a life worth loving, a life worth having. Where do you think all this talk about self-worth comes from? We're trying to prove ourselves, aren't we? I don't have to prove myself. I don't have to project a self on you that I want you to like. I don't have to defend a self. I'm afraid you're going to accuse of something. You know what happens when you know you have a gracious God? You learn to receive yourself. I receive the new creation you've made me to be. I am what you say I am. I pastor a church on the University of Florida campus, about 175 college students. 75% of my church is under 25 and single. And I love to greet them either in the call to worship or at another part of the service with something like this. You know, they've been out all night and they're bleary-eyed and drug themselves in. They're propped up against one another just so they don't fall over on Sunday mornings. Well, how is your holy, righteous, totally forgiven, perfectly loved, deathless self today? How are you? Now, that's not usually what they're thinking of themselves when they come into the room. That may not be reflective of their behavior just about three hours previous to their getting there and returning to consciousness. But if they're in Christ, it's what Christ says about them. Under grace, we don't spend much time fussing at the old man. We speak to the new man. We call the best out of one another. We might, as parents, catch one of our children in a lie, and the most Christian thing we can do is get down on their knees and not ignore the lie, but look them in the eye and say, you know what, it must feel horrible to tell a lie because there's no liar living in you. You are a truth teller. You will never, ever be at home again telling a lie. None of us is defined by our behavior. We're not defined by our performance. We're not defined by the opinions of others. Why would you give that kind of authority to someone else except the one who made you and recreated you in Christ? 
Our children would sometimes come home from school and just give you a quick composite story, and one of my little girls would say, On the playground today, Johnny, he said I was stupid. <laughs> and being the compassionate, merciful father that I am, I would say, Well, are you? <laughs> I mean, if you are, there are people out there that can fix stupid. Dad's on your side, we'll go get some help. No, not stupid. Well, then you've got an important decision to make. You're going to spend the rest of your life like this. Teachers and friends and enemies and employers are going to be saying, you're this, you're that, you're this, you're that. And in every one of those moments, you've got a decision to make. And I, am I what these people say I am or am I what God says I am? Then I would say, did God make you stupid? Not one of mine I couldn't ask that question to. It would have been an excuse for all kinds of things. Right? You've got to individualize with each child. But did God make you stupid? No. Then that's the most important thing you can draw from this moment of tension, this strain, this stress, this heartache in you right now. That you are not what other people say you are. You are what God says you are. This is a gracious God who has given us the life of His Son, Jesus Christ. Made us into brand new creations. What an amazing God we're dealing with. Do you know what that means? In order to sin, what do I have to do? I have to forget God is gracious. I have got to disregard and deny the holy, righteous nature of Christ in me and forget all about this new creation that He's made me to be, leave my home in Christ, go out to the far country, and do something that is not in my best interest. It's really not all that easy if you've got a gracious God. Listen, to sin, you've also got to forget or ignore or defy. There's a good God at work. A good God who says, I'm going to supply every one of your needs. And that means in so many words that we're talking about a God who is always for us. He is always looking out for our best interest. I know it doesn't look like that. I know it doesn't feel like that. And I don't need to compare my wounds with yours right now to see which of us has been through more heartache in life. We've all got our wounds and our scars. We've all got places where it didn't feel good, it didn't look good. And that's the Bible's way of saying if we're going to talk about and use Bible language, we want to use a Bible dictionary as well. Our guys talked about this weekend that there comes a time in your growing up life as a Christian, you've got to redefine the word good. We think about good being what's pleasant or agreeable or favorable, right? When all the weather is great and the fish are biting, I say, man, this is a good day. When that meal is just right, when that bed sleeps so well, we say, what a good experience for us to have. But that's not how the Bible defines goodness. When the Bible talks about goodness, it talks about that which is profitable, that which is beneficial. That which advances the purpose, the plan, the cause of the actor involved. So Paul would say, while he's in a prison in Rome, chained to a Roman guard, in chapter 1 of Philippians, verse 12, I will thank my good God because He is using my circumstances, my chains, to press the gospel into places it could not have otherwise gone. Why? Because Paul had a good God. His circumstances didn't have to be favorable. 
They didn't have to be agreeable. It doesn't change the nature of our God. That's why the Bible says things like, thank God for everything. See through it. See a good God at work in that moment, pressing us into places that we wouldn't have volunteered to go on into. That's why Paul says the sufferings of this world in Romans 8.18 are real and they hurt and we're allowed to pour out our pain into the infinite love of our God, but the sufferings of this world are nothing compared to the glory that awaits us. They have a benefit, one of God's benefits in mind for us. They press us, if nothing else, into the Savior who is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You said you wanted to be like God, didn't you? You said you wanted to be like Jesus, and God believed you. So He will make you and me acquainted with sorrows and suffering and grief. It's in our best interest some days. Because He's a good God, what does that mean? He has to attach a consequence from time to time to any choice that we make that is contrary to His goodness. And it's not because He's mad at us. Remember, He's a good God. He's for us. He's just going to cause every other false God to fail us. He's going to fail every temporary good. We've got an eternal itch inside of us that only the uncreated goodness of God can scratch. And when that itch rears itself inside of us and we go rub up against this temporary thing or ask this person to soothe that itch inside of us, it might work temporarily, but God will cause that temporary scratcher to fade, to fail. He will put the law of diminishing returns into effect and it will not produce the same satisfaction that it used to. And that is the love of God that is for us because he always has our best interest in mind he's a good God the scripture says that will supply our every need second Peter chapter 1 verse 3 what does Peter tell the young church in the spirit say to us today you have received in Christ everything pertaining to life and godliness we have everything that we need to live the life God wants us to live. We have everything in Christ already deposited in our human spirits that enable us and energize us for godly living. There's nothing missing that we need. He said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 3, that we have every spiritual blessing, or Ephesians 1, 3, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Colossians 2, 9 and 10, all the fullness of God dwells in Christ, and now Christ dwells in you. You are complete in Him. No gaps, no deficit, missing nothing that we need. We may not have laid hold of all that yet. We may not have brought that into the realm of our experience, but we have everything that we need. I have to constantly tell, especially our young guys in our church, that you know a need is something that without it you die. We need air, we need liquid intake, we need fuel, we need food. Without it, you die. Sex is not a need. You will not die if you don't have sex this weekend. You might feel like it. You might think it. You think everybody else is out there living and I'm home deader than a hammer tonight. But you will not die without sex. Ah, I thought all the women were going to say amen, not the men. It's God's way of saying, you know, you don't have to fear missing out. 
Because I'm a good God, there's nothing missing that you need for ultimate satisfaction. Why is that so important? Because if I don't think I'm being satisfied, if I fear I'm missing out on something, and I want relief from that kind of pain and that kind of desire, I'm vulnerable to the very next offer that drops in front of me, aren't I? Boy, if I need to be loved in a specific way and you are not scratching that itch inside of me and somebody I work with or even somebody at church knows how to scratch that itch, don't you find it hard not to be drawn in that direction? Now, if you have a good God, you have what you need. But if you don't know that, we're vulnerable to the offers that drop in front of us. And what does the liar do? What does your adversary do? He drops something down in front of you that looks like life. It feels good. It looks good. It matches this fantasy of what your life would be like had you been God. And it looks like it's really good for you, but you reach out and grab that thing and it becomes death. It takes you. Something dies. What does your heavenly Father do who's a truth teller, who's a good God? He'll put fences around some of those things because he's his way of saying there's no life out there. I know you think there is. I don't know about you. I still hear the voices from the far country. The far country says, hey, 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 life's over here. Look, look, look at all these smiling people over here. Look at the fun they're having. Your God's putting a fence around you because he's anti-happy. He's anti-joy. He's mad at you. You'll never please him anyway. Come on out here where the life is. Maybe you don't hear those voices any longer. I still hear them from time to time. But if God puts a fence around something, it's because it's in our best interest not to transgress that particular boundary. We don't have to look to the temporary. We don't have to look to what's here today and gone tomorrow. He doesn't want us to believe this world is our home. We are made for the eternal goodness of God. His goodness that can satisfy and deal with that itch inside of us. That's why he says in Matthew 6.33, If you will seek me, and my goodness, my reign, my rule in your life first, you will have what you need. All these things will be given to you. And that's a tremendous promise. It does bring a sense of relief. But I tell you what, I found out some years ago that the converse of that truth is maybe even more powerful. It was for me. If it's true that God is a good God and I seek Him first, I have what I need. You know what that means? Whatever I don't have in hand right now in this moment, I must not need. If He's a good God, and He is in me, He is not going to withhold whatever I need. Now, I still at times want to be the determiner of good, don't you? I know what's good for me and bad for me. I know I don't need this stress in my life. I know if I had more of this in the bank, and I know if this person would quit harassing me, those things would be good for me. Now, I'm still defining goodness as that which is favorable and agreeable to me from my point of view. And you know what I'm doing when I do that? I'm joining Grandma Eve and Grandpa Adam and going back to the Garden of Eden, and I'm taking from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm deciding for myself this is good for me and bad for me. I know better than God knows what I need. And every time you and I do that, something dies. Our peace dies. Our rest dies. That's why in certain instances, God has given us imperatives and directives. 
Just take the Ten Commandments in particular. Again, there, there are others in the New Testament, but just take a quick glance at them in any given moment. And we often think, and our world thinks, you know, this is a mean God who's trying to steal all your joy and keep you from having any fun. It's our Creator saying to us, I fashioned you. I know how you tick. I know what's good for you, and I know what's bad for you. And I've put fences around coveting and around adultery and around a lie and around um, uh, having other gods before me because every time you climb one of those fences and you cross onto the other side, I'm telling you something is going to die. Now, that's not a threat. I don't even believe it's the punishment of an angry God that we've offended. It is a loving, good God who says there will be a consequence when you move outside that boundary because I have created you to live in here. And the life that I've given you in my Son Jesus Christ is the life that stays inside these boundaries. A few years ago, I was out at the Grand Canyon. And if you've ever been out there, uh, on the very edge of the ledge of the Grand Canyon, there are at numerous points signs that say this literally, and I quote, no spectators pass this point. And you go, duh. <laughs> it's 5,000 feet straight down there. Now, the day I was there, there was no individual person or no crowd of people saying, I can't believe these park rangers. They are trying to keep me from seeing what is my right as a taxpayer of the United States to see. Here's the government again, interfering in my business, telling me where I can stand and where I can't stand. I can't believe these people trying to control my life and keep me from getting my $20 worth. I didn't find anybody like that that day. In fact, my wife wouldn't even get close to the sign. Now, I'm one of those people that hangs on to the sign occasionally. But one of the park rangers that was standing next to me, I was having a conversation with him, said 2.7 people every year disregard that and fall to their death on average in the Grand Canyon. I said, I bet they're all 19-year-old boys. You know, we're indestructible then. We don't pay attention to boundaries. That doesn't apply to me. I know how to deal with this. Listen, this is a good God for you and me. He puts a fence around something. Listen, 2.7 people say, the fence doesn't apply to me. It's not in my best interest. I want to see. Listen, when you go over, I'll bet the free fall is exhilarating. I'll bet the first 5,000 feet are a blast. When you fall into sin, there is pleasure for a season. It feels good for a while to have God or no one else tell you what to do. It feels great to say, I can decide for myself what's good for me and bad for me. I know what I need. It's that sudden stop at the bottom that gets your attention. It's God saying, you can covet all you want. You can commit adultery anytime you want. I'll never stop loving you. You can bear false witness against your neighbor every single day if that's what you want to do. But I promise you, every time you do, something's going to die. It's not because I'm mad at you. It's because I'm a good God and I'm for you. I didn't create you to operate that way. I made you in my image. I don't covet anything. I don't bear false witness. I don't ever 
be unfaithful to my children, to my bride. That's not who I am. That's not who you are any longer. It'll never work for you. My goodness will see to that. You see, to sin, you've got to sell your birthright for an immediate bowl of porridge that's gone in three hours. You've got to leave home with your heavenly Father. All the provisions you need are here at home. He doesn't send provisions to the far country. But you've got to leave home and go to the far country. You've got to defy. You've got to ignore. You've got to forget this good God just to commit a sin. Thirdly, in order to sin, we've got to forget and ignore and defy this glorious God who always gets the final word. You know, our guys this weekend took a look at that word glory, and it means to have weight, to have substance, to be really solid. And what does the Bible teach us over and over again? The Word of God, the nature of God, carries more weight than all the words of the world put together. There's more authority behind one sentence that God speaks than all the particular reigning experts of the day combined. So much so, God is so glorious in His nature and so substantial in what He says to us, His Word trumps every other word. That commands our respect. That calls for utmost honor to be given to Him. Whatever I may say, or the experts of the day may say, or whatever the devil or the fallen voices of this world have to say to us about life is crushed by the truth of our God. He's that solid. He's that real. He'll always win out. The resurrection is the ultimate proof of that. Our Creator comes to rescue us in person. Our Creator comes to deal with a lost race and rectify us and put us back on course. Our Creator graciously lays aside all of His godly prerogatives and shows up here to pour out His life for us in order to redeem us and bring us back into the family and we crucify our Creator. What was the verdict of the world on God in human flesh? We'll not have this man rule over us. He is worthy of death. But you see, that verdict was overturned by a higher court. The same God who said in the beginning, let there be light, said one more time, let there be light, and all the forces of darkness in creation could not snuff out the light of the world. He always gets the final word. That's a part of His glory. It's established by His say-so. We may not see it all done with these eyes in our lifetime. But what does the resurrection tell us? We're dealing with a God that knows how to right every wrong. I may not see every enemy put in His place. I may not see justice served in this world to every person who has offended me. But that need not stop my God when He says to me, Give them forgiveness. I don't have to hold a grudge against them to make them pay. I don't have to seek vengeance if I have a glorious God. I do not have to justify my rage and my depression any longer if I have a glorious God who will write it in the end. What? If this is who He is, I don't have to be in control. This is a God whose light expels the darkness, whose life overcomes death whose love casts out all fear, and I'm joined to that life. Why would we give authority, why would we give such weight and honor to lesser words? To these words and 
changing every single day about what's right and what's wrong and about what's good and what's bad and what will work for me and what won't. If you go to John chapter 5 in your New Testaments, in one particular section I find one of the best and most succinct contrasts between receiving glory or approval from other people and glory or approval that comes from God. Listen to what Jesus says in John 5.39. You search the Scripture because you think that in them you have life. Here's the problem. You're thinking wrongly. You've listened to the wrong voice. There's no life in this book. This book doesn't save anybody. It takes a person to save people. It takes the person to whom every word in this book is pointing. There are no facts able to save you. It takes a person to save you. Jesus said, you keep studying your Bible because you think in studying your Bible you can somehow create a life that my God will receive. But you won't come to me. All of these words point to me. I'm the Savior. I'm the Deliverer. These all bear witness of me. Look what he says in verse 41 about this. Look, I don't receive my glory from men. What's he saying? I don't give that much weight, that much substance to what people think about me. Why would I give an inf- a fallible, imperfect human being the authority to name me? Would I not rather listen to my father? Would we not rather listen to a truth teller who is always perfect and accurate in his assessment of who we are? I don't give that kind of weight, Jesus says to other people. But I know you, and if the love of God is not in you, you're going to do something else. Look what he says in verse 44. How can you believe when you receive approval or glory from one another, and you don't seek the approval or glory that comes from the one and only God? Listen, look for your glory from your fellow man. Look for your approval from your family and your peers and the fallen voices of this world. Look for honor from the human race. Give them that kind of weight and substance and worth. Set your mind on the things below, and I promise you something. You will have many, many gods. You'll have a God at home. You'll have a God in your family history. Some of those people may be dead, but you're still listening to what they say about you and how worthless you are and how you're never going to amount to anything. You still bow before that God. You'll have a God at work. You'll have a God at church. You'll have a God everywhere you go naming you if you look to get your approval from these sources. No wonder life is so noisy. This is when it becomes really complex and it's impossible to come by rest and by peace. We're so easily swayed by the ever-changing voices of this world instead of being shaped by the holy constants of God. No wonder when the winds and the rains and the storms of life hit us, we tumble so easily because we have built the houses of our identity on shifting sand. There are just not that many rock-solid people. Even in the body of Christ, because we often come to church being more concerned about what people think about us than what God says about us. We'll present present ourselves having spent a whole lot more time dressing this body up so everybody thinks we're somebody as opposed to getting ready to come and worship a holy, almighty God. We give our... We give others the power, the authority, the weight, the substance to name and define who we are. 
But he also gives us a little clue in there in verse 44 why faith or belief is so hard for some of us to come by. Faith comes by what? Hearing. Hearing by what? The Word of God. What's Jesus saying? How can you expect to hear God when you're so tuned into what everybody else thinks? When our hearts and our minds and our inner ears are so wrapped up in what everybody else thinks of us, and that noise is chattering in us constantly, how can we expect to hear the still, small voice of God? Listen, we have a glorious God. If we look for glory from Him and our honor and get our well-being from Him, we have one God, Him. Oh, I'm not suggesting life's going to be easy or the suffering's going away. Don't think that for a minute. I'm going in the opposite direction. I'm simply saying that when you and I learn to disregard, I'm not talking about ignoring people. I think anybody that says to me, I don't care what people think, I think they're lying. That's a defense mechanism you've used to kind of deal with some of the things you don't want to hear. I do care what people think, but listen, I care more of what God thinks. And if there's a conflict between what you say about me and what God says about me, I'm going with the higher priority, who has the more weight. In fact, often what you say about me is the very thing that drives me into hearing what God says about me. Count it all joy. Count it all joy. When people accuse you or they judge you wrongly because you can take their criticism. Don't ever defend yourself when somebody criticizes you. You take that criticism and you say, God, is it true? Maybe I've got a blind spot, and this is your agent. That's why God gives your adversaries. Your friends don't love you enough to tell you the truth. Every now and then, God sends an adversary. And you take that criticism, God, is this true? He may say, yes, son, it's true. I sent this one against you to get your attention. More often than not, he says, no, that's not who you are. You're what I say you are, not what they think you are. Who have you given the authority to name you? Because if you look for your glory, your approval from the fallen voices of this world, you're trapped. You're trapped in the need to impress people. It may not be socially or politically correct, but essentially what that's about is showing off. If we give our authority to people, we've got to project an image out there that we think they're going to approve of, and you never get to be yourself. You're constantly comparing and contrasting yourself to other people, measuring yourself by a standard less than God's measuring standard, which is Christ. Showing off is a fool's idea of glory. A fool is a person who says in his heart there is no God. Showing off is a fool's idea of glory. But if I say there is a God and He is a glorious God, I don't need to show off. If you're not a show off, you've got to go into hiding. You've got to pretend. You've got to repress stuff and deny stuff and suppress things that often need to come to the surface. Either way, we end up living a lie. Listen, in order to sin, you and I have got to say no to what God thinks of us. In order to sin, we've got to give more weight to a voice other than God's voice. We'll listen to a liar, not a truth teller. Finally this, if we're going to sin, you've got to forget and ignore and defy a great God who's always at work in your life. You know, our scripture tells us our God is a God who neither slumbers nor sleeps. 
He's always at work, in other words. A metaphorical way of saying our God never misses a thing. He is always at work. We have a tendency to say God's just not working in our lives. You know what that means? I don't like things right now. That's all that means. No, He is always at work in our life. He's never slumbering or sleeping or missing anything that's going on. We may be the ones that are asleep. In fact, Paul wrote the church in Ephesus in chapter 5 of Ephesians, verse 14, and he said to them, essentially, you're the ones sleepwalking. You're the ones walking through life missing what's really going on out there. Well, I know you got a pulse and you're busy and there are all kinds of activities going on, even some religious ones, but you are asleep to ultimate reality. That's why he says these words, awake sleeper, rise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. Sometimes moving from the natural into the spiritual realm is very simply a matter of waking up. Waking up. I told the guys this weekend, I really don't like hearing brothers and sisters say, oh, it is what it is. It is not. It's never what it is. Not if we have a great God. It is never just what it is. There is always more to what it is than what it is. Than what it seems to be. Than what I think, what I feel, what I see, what I hear. We have a God who is a, at work. A great God causing all of the things in my world to work together for good. It's time we wake up to this great God. I love the story of Jacob back in Genesis. And in Genesis 28, 16, after Jacob had a restless night of sleep, he woke up and said, Surely the Lord was in this place and I didn't know it. Wouldn't that describe most of our days? I mean, if we're asleep to ultimate reality, if we're not cognizant of this great God, surely God was in my day, in this blessing, in this adversary, in this conflict, in this gift, and I didn't even know it. Because my God is so small. People tell me in the counseling room all the time, God let me down. I say, oh, He didn't. No, He didn't. God never lets us down. It's only our constructs of God that let us down. You've got a construct of God that says, well, He's only in this kind of stuff that is favorable and agreeable and feels good to me, but He's not in this kind of stuff. There is no place, no time that God isn't. He is omnipresent. He is omniscient. He is a great God at work and everything and most of our stressors in life. Listen, this world is not a stressful world. I know you think otherwise, but you're not thinking rightly. This world's not a stressful world. There is no stress in the world. The stress is in here. I'm the stressful one, right? Stress isn't out there. The stressors are out there, but it's the stressors and the strains of life, like James said, the trials and the temptations... James says, wake up, count it joy, because your God is in it doing something He couldn't otherwise do. When Jesus told the disciples to get in the boat and row to the other side, He told them to do that knowing full well there was going to be a storm hit about the time they were in the middle. I love sitting around a campfire and you sing God is so good and they'd ask people, you know, Okay, what's the next verse? You know, he answers prayer, and we'd sing he answers prayer. He loves me so, he loves me so. I'd yell out, he sends the storms. The song quit at that point. He does. He is Lord of the storms. And a great God will send a storm into our life just so you may come to know who the Lord of the storms is. 
how great he is in buying up a mess and turning it into a message you'll have the rest of your life. We wake up to the truth that our great God is at work in the all things of life. I'd love for you sometime to go home and just look at the passages that have the all things phrase in it. I'm just going to name a couple. Romans 11:36. For from him and through him and back to him are all things. Is your God that big? You got him in a little box over here? No wonder he keeps letting you down. You got him in the good stuff that feels nice? You got him in your God box? You know, in your 10% and your 30 minutes a day and your one day out of the week? Is that your God? That's not a very great God. That's how you manage your God. You keep him where he's supposed to be so you can do what you want with the other 90%, six days, 23 and a half hours. All things. This is why we also read in Romans 8.28 that God causes all things. I know you don't want to say it, but say it. He causes all things. That's pretty inclusive, isn't it? The difficult person, the medical diagnosis, the lost job, the financial strain. He causes all things. The handicapped child we've been living with for 27 years. He causes the all things to work together for good? Do you understand why Paul would write that young church in Thessalonica and say in chapter 5, verse 18, in all things give thanks? Thanksgiving kind of works like spiritual liquid plumber. When you get all kind of clogged up on the inside because you don't like the, law, the all things, we choose in faith, and some days you wear the enamel right off your teeth. You grit them and say, thank you, Jesus. We choose in faith to obey our God because He is a great God and often it is that thanking of God in the midst of the all things that tunes and turns our soul toward this great God. I don't have to feel grateful to give God thanks anymore than I have to feel like forgiving somebody to forgive them. Forgiveness is too good for most of the people that offend me as far as I'm concerned. But the forgiver lives inside of me. And he is a great God who can release others when we release forgiveness to them. What does that mean if we have a great God at work in the all things of life? There are no random events or meaningless moments. I work with our college students who are into all kinds of things across the street from where our church meets. And we have this argument every semester, every year in some way, shape, or form. Everything in life is either ultimately meaningless or ultimately meaningful. There is no logical middle ground. None. The two don't even mix. These verses tell us we have such a great God, there are no meaningless moments in my world. There may be painful moments. There will be sorrowful moments. There will be moments of suffering. But none of them are meaningless. It is not sorrow. It is not pain. It is not suffering that debilitates people. It is meaningless sorrow. It's meaningless suffering. It's meaningless pain that causes us to lose our minds. But we have a great God. No meaningless moments in Christ. He never leaves us or forsakes us. He can never be defeated. He's always at work. And that builds a passion inside of us for what is possible. Because whatever I'm in, my God is in it. 
It doesn't matter if I even caused it. If I made a stupid, foolish, sinful, far country choice, if I'm in it, my God is in it because He said, I'm not ever going to leave you or forsake you. And if you will listen to me and believe me and confess what I say to you, I will buy up that mess, that liability potentially, and I will turn it into an asset for my kingdom's sake. You may have a scar all the rest of your lives, but I will use it to glorify me. I will use it to shape you into who I made you to be. Listen, what does the devil want you and me to do? To judge God through the lens of our circumstances. And here we are in sorrow, we're in suffering, we're in fatigue. We've lived with this so long, we forgot what that looked like. And we look at God through that lens and we say, I just don't think God is all that great or He wouldn't let me live in this for 27 years. Oh, I know He created the world, but I'm not sure He's all that good. Because if He were all that good, He wouldn't let that kind of evil happen. What is this great God inviting us to do? He's saying, look, I want you to look at those circumstances through me. It may or may not change the facts, but it'll change the story you tell about those facts. I am a great God. Absolutely nothing meaningless. I'm always at work for your good and for the sake of the kingdom. I'm a sovereign, loving, redeeming God. And if my God is in that kind of control, I don't have to be in control any longer. I don't have to manipulate people to get them on my terms. I don't have to keep using that carnal tactic and that self-preserving weapon to get people to line up with my preferences. I have a great God. And if He is absolutely who He says He is, this sovereign, loving, redeeming God, and there's nothing meaningless going on in my world, then I can lay down the illusion of control because that's all I ever had in the first place. I never was in control of my life. It only took me 72 hours of being married to figure that out. I have a low threshold of pain. (laughs) I'm not in charge of my children. I never was in control. That doesn't mean we don't have influence. That doesn't mean you and I, believing in this God, can't contribute to an atmosphere that makes it as easy as possible for them to make good choices. But I don't have control over anybody. Not over time. I don't need to overpower you. I don't need to intimidate you. I don't need to come down here and convince you of what I believe to be true. I have a great God. All I have to do is bear witness to what I believe to be true. And then He is the convincer if He wants to do so. That's when our peace begins to return. That's when the joy of the Lord starts becoming our strength. That's when we move out of manipulation into ministry. Final verse. In 1 John 4, 4, we read about this greatness in a very personal and intimate form. Because John says this to the body of Christ even today. Greater is He who is in you, in me, than he who is out there in the world. All this greatness we're talking about is in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ has taken up residence in me. It's easy to forget and to ignore, I know, some days. 
It doesn't feel that way when you're just getting slammed with wave after wave of lies and bad news. I know when I'm not living out of that, when I've ignored or forgotten to remember this great God by the complaining and grumbling and groaning and murmuring that becomes chronic in me. I don't believe there's anything wrong with complaining and grumbling and pouring it into the infinite love of God. I believe every one of us has to learn to acknowledge and own our soulish reaction to any set of circumstances. We have five children. They were all five teenagers at once. I'd walk into a room ten times a day and say, God, I feel like slapping somebody silly. <laughs> and I am b abiding in the great God when I say that. God, I feel like slapping somebody silly. As long as I don't put a period there and let that feeling tell me what to do next. You let the Holy Spirit turn that period into a comma and say, but God, what do you say? Do you have a better offer before I send somebody to the hospital or I go to jail? <laughs> that is abiding. That is trusting in a great God. There is nothing wrong. This is the truth that gives you your humanity back. You get to feel. You get to think. He intends you and me to react to our circumstances and let those circumstances press us into Him and His truth. That's the holy but. I feel like slapping somebody silly, but God, what do you say? I feel like quitting and giving up, but before I do, what do you say? I'm in so much pain, this offer of relief is really looking good to me, but I'm trusting you to come through with something better. Now, a great God is one you can trust to do that. But when I'm just grumbling and complaining and letting those voices authorize what I do next, I'm also believing, I'm just believing a lie. I'm making a confession of faith, but in that moment, with all that grumbling and complaining, my confession of faith is this, greater is he who is in the world than he who is in me. You see, I've got to leave a great God just to become a sourpuss every day. I don't have to be happy. Thank God. I have to be honest, I have to be real and trust that God will give me His joy in that moment which will become my strength not to take that counterfeit offer. See, we don't want appearances to determine reality. We don't want the partial, what we see and feel and think to determine the whole story. To do that, you've got to totally disregard this great God. King of kings, Lord of lords at work in every moment of our lives. I may not know very many of you very well, but I know something about you. I'm not even sure you know it yet. Some of you do. Deep down, if you stop and think about it, you all know it. I know you would say to me as a son or daughter of God, I, uh, this is really true, and, and, I, and I, you know, I, it's hard to argue against, but you know, I, I really don't want to sin. I know you don't. You were given a new wanter when you put faith in Jesus Christ. You will never ever be at home living for yourself again. I mean, if you want to spend the next five years going out and working on your testimony, go ahead and live for yourself. Come back and go have a good listening story. That's not your wanter. That's not what you were made for. But you will not stop sinning by trying harder not to sin. You're still the center of that story, not this God. 
You're not going to stop sinning by making more promises. You're not going to stop sinning by being more committed. You're not going to stop sinning by going to church more often. You're not going to resist the tempter by focusing on the devil. You're not going to overpower the temptation by focusing on the temptation, by looking at sin and trying to find sin in your life, or by becoming self-conscious. You will never become Jesus like, like Jesus by focusing on sin or yourself, only by focusing on Jesus. You will only know the victory that is the birthright of every single one of us that lines up with our want to when our focus is this great, glorious, gracious, and good God. He's the defeater. He's the overcomer. He's the sinless one who lives in you and me. This is the God who is for you. This is the God who lives in you. This is the God who wants to express His overcoming life through you. To sin, you've got to ignore Him. Defy Him. Neglect the life He's given you in His Son. Will you pray with me? Father, you are great in all of your ways, glorious beyond comparison, gracious in ways that all of eternity will not exhaust, good beyond measure. I pray you would set my brothers and sisters free in this church for their families, for their community, for one another, by making yourself fully known to them. And as they grow up to know who you are and where you are, they will become aware of all that you have given them for life in the moment. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.